Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us here on Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, so high pivot enduro bikes are definitely having a bit of a moment, but Cavins had been working on their own long before the trend had really kicked off, and they launched their first model, the VHP 16, a couple of years ago. Now, they've just launched a new, longer travel version, the VHP 18, and so we figured it was a good time to have their founder, Giacomo, on the show to talk about the very interesting history behind Cavins and his original company, 77 Designs, his super early start in the bike industry interning for Nikolai when he was just 17, and a whole bunch of really interesting stuff about running a bike company and the trade-offs between starting a business in something that is also your passion, i.e. mountain biking in this case, and a whole lot more. But before we get into that, I also want to just take a minute to encourage those of you who haven't already to check out our Blister membership and consider signing up. You get a whole bunch of really good discounts on top ski and bike brands, including wheels from We Are One Composites, which we've reviewed very favorably in the past. And you also get the opportunity to shoot us an email and ask specific questions about the gear that you're considering buying or set up on your bike, and I'll respond to you. So if you're enjoying listening to me get real nerdy about bike stuff, like on this conversation, it's a great opportunity to sign up for a Blister membership, shoot me an email, and talk bikes. So check it out. We have a link in the show notes with all the information, and consider signing up. And with that, let's get right to my conversation with Giacomo. Well, Giacomo, it's great to have you on. How are you today, and where are you today? Yeah, thanks for having me. And um, I'm in Germany in my in the head office of 77 Designs and Cavents and um, the 77 store where we distribute some stuff as well. So it's um, yeah, it's a nice place. We have a good office here, sitting here with five people in the office and, and running the whole gong show. I would say. Awesome. Yeah. Well, very excited for the chat because you guys have been up to some pretty cool stuff with cabins and the the bike lineup, and then. As we'll get into in a minute here, just launched a new model to go along with uh, the original VHP 16. So before we get into all that, though, I think we should probably circle back a little bit and just talk about your background in the bike industry and 77 designs to start. So tell us about that company and when and why you founded it and how we kind of got this whole story started. The real starting point was with an internship in um, with Nikolai Bikes when I was 17, so that was about 2000. And um, from, from there, it never let me go. I was always thinking about bikes, how to improve bikes and how to improve my riding. Everybody remembers, especially all the guys, uh, remember all the, all the parts on the bikes were failing, essentially. <laughs> so there was, was a lot of room for improvement. So... So basically, our our approach in the beginning, when we founded in 2007, our own brand, was really just to to improve the stuff that that, that doesn't satisfy us. And uh, initially, I, I broke my arm because I got a chain clamp and couldn't pedal anymore, and I was just uh, going on a road cap. So I couldn't build enough speed, uh, but I couldn't stop stop either. So that, that was the moment I, I shouldn't blame the other company who was building that chain guide. I should just do it better myself. And that was the original starting point of 77 designs. 
yeah, it makes sense. So you kind of had this idea to start making some better parts and with starting with chain guides. But tell us a little bit about what your background was at that point. Obviously, you mentioned the internship with Nikolai, but what kind of engineering and product design experience did you have? And how did you land that internship with Nikolai in the first place also? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was um, making my um, my pre-university um, in art and, um, and product development. So I, I went to an internship with Nikolai, which turned out to be more like an engineering um, sort of internship. And after I finished my pre-university, I wanted to go to, to university and study art and design. They kind of rejected me. So I decided, okay, what can I do now? So I went to engineering university. And uh, yeah, I, I couldn't be there more than two years. It was way too theoretical for me. I wanted to just to get hands-on dirty. So I canceled that and went to um, machining. So I became a precision mechanic. And um, yeah, from there, basically, I, I had all, all the little ingredients that it needed to, to design a bike, right? So I was, um, from, from the age of 17, I was um, playing around with linkage and kinematics, and that was really interesting for me from, from very early on, how to improve and manipulate uh, the behavior, the feel of the bike. And um, yeah, so basically, when we started 77 Designs, we, we already started designing a DH bike, which is not so so broadly known, but um, it was like just two years after after we started, 2007, 2009, we already had our um, DH bike prototypes and could never commercialize those. So that, that's why it's not like broadly known, but we, we always were working on bikes, essentially. So there's a ton of experience there. Yeah. Okay. And again, sort of, you had this this background with Nikolai too. Tell us more about that. How you got the internship, and then also kind of what sort of work you were doing for them. It's sort of funny. We had a um, photographer who was um, who was uh, studying design. He was living in my town, and uh, he was, I would say, one of the first internships in interns with Nikolai. And at the time, I so I heard from him that it's possible to make a cool internship there and to learn a lot because they produce everything in-house. And Kala was kind of like a, an idol for me in that time. He was like the guy when, when, when it came to kinematics and those kind of stuff. And he was producing everything in, in one place. So you could get the, the best insight possible of how, how bikes were made. So that was really interesting. So through, through that guy from my town, I, I got to know him. And then went for that internship. And I think in that time, we were like 12 interns in the same time, living all in the same hotel, going all to work together. I think the entire company, the <laughs> entire development part was run by, by the interns, essentially. It was really fun, really good experience. Yeah, that sounds incredible, especially at 17. Just an amazing opportunity to get super early on. And so... Well, yeah, like I said, then kind of fast forward a little bit. You start 77 Designs and you've got this DH bike prototype that you've built, but it didn't go anywhere commercially. Where along the line then did you start thinking about what would eventually become the VHP 16 that we'll talk about in more detail in a minute here? Um, there was a lot of drama in between because I never decided, I opened the company for passion and I never decided to, to, to make it like a business, right? So, so it was just eating my time and never making any money. So at one point I was on, on, on the splitting point, kind of I had to decide to, to either sell the company or get the, 
get an investor in. Um, and the investor thing failed in the last minute, so I had to sell the company because it wasn't just running well financially. We had great products, we had great reputation, but it, it just didn't make money because we had no idea how to make money, how to pay bills. We were young, we were wild and free. Yeah? We just wanted to build bikes and we were like busting our asses in the main job. So, But um, in, in, in the other bank, the friends of mine who were going to university and finishing the university, they were finishing the university and they were saying, Giacomo, look at us. We have less experience than you. And then you already build a big company. You have already made a name. And, and we have to pay back our, um, our the, the money we paid for the, inter, for the university, right? So basically, just, just learning it all myself, putting myself in the cold water was, was the right choice. And I could get out of it pretty easy. And then I was working for the company. We sold it for Imanon. Unfortunately, they weren't, uh, weren't taking off really well. So I, I lost that job, and that was the point that I said, okay, now sit down. You want that, but you don't want to burn yourself out. You don't want to use yourself to a point that you can't go no more and not make any money. So I was thinking, okay, you want to do that again, but you got to think it as a business. It, it has to make money to be healthy, right? So from that point, I structured it as business, was thinking more about how to sell, how to sell successful. And before, I, I, didn't, I didn't give a shit about marketing. I was just thinking, here's my product, like it or not, you know, who cares? So from then, I set it up as a business and uh, yeah, it sort of worked. And uh, the chain guides made enough money to invest into the bike project. And then we could, like, little by little, build up momentum and... Um, yeah, really think about the, this this big dream that we had about a high pivot bike that doesn't have that has that anti rise problem solved that the, the single pivot bikes have, and yeah, that's where we are still like putting every every single minute of passion in. That's a really good story, and I guess I'd be curious to hear a little bit more before we get into the, the details of the bikes themselves about that mindset change that you had of kind of doing the reset and thinking okay, I need to take this more seriously as a business rather than just focusing on the product design side of things. Tell us more about what you changed about your approach and what you started doing differently from that point forward that kind of made things click and made the business really start to work. Basically, it was, um, I would say, I, I met my wife in that time and she helped me a lot to change my mindset. Because before I came from like a like a hippie, I don't deserve anything kind of, let's just like not make money and be happy all together mindset. But the, the problem was like I was paying the price, you know, I was just burning myself out. I was like having a, a side job, making 1000 euro and working 60 hours a week. So that that's not healthy, right? You can't do that for a long time. You can do that with a perspective to build something, to get somewhere. So I, I definitely didn't want to do that. And um, I very early decided I can't do the shipping by myself. I can't do all the works that, that I don't like. I, I didn't start a business to be shipping and communicating with, with customers back and forward. I opened my business to be able to design the products that I love and uh, not have any limitation that I would have when I would work for a bigger firm. I had to, had to make it work, yeah. I had to make it financially work to get that independency to do whatever I want to do. No, it totally makes sense that you sort of need to find a balance. You can't, you get into this thing because you 
really are passionate about bikes and want to be involved in that world, but the realities of it being a job and running a business and just burning yourself out, I can imagine pretty quickly kind of erode what seemed really appealing about it in the first place. And so, so from there, what, I mean, what did you do? You hired some people to handle shipping and the other kinds of stuff that you had been sort of just taking on all yourself and started to find the ways to kind of carve out some more time and have it feel a little bit more sustainable or, or what? How did that go? Yeah, exactly. I was um, I was preferring to hire somebody to do the shipping or to do the, the, the simple tasks that I wasn't interested in, that they weren't like making me happy. And I was rather like doing some R&D for another company, doing the stuff that I was passionate about for other companies and making money with that on the side than just like standing there and uh, yeah, doing stuff I don't like. And that R&D side work that you're talking about, was that all pretty much bike industry stuff or was it kind of more general engineering services for a bigger spectrum of companies? Yeah, I did some weird shelf marketing stuff, but uh, most of it was for other bike brands, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so then, yeah, you got to the point where you were ready to start designing your own bike and really go forward with that project. So to start off, before we get into the really fine details of the bike, tell us in more general terms, just what you were hoping to accomplish with it and kind of what the overall design philosophy was. What was the starting point from you're like, okay, well, this is what I want to do differently, right? There are a lot of good bikes out there. And so how were you imagining that you were going to differentiate yourself and do something differently, I guess? Essentially, it started, I was um, I was visiting family of my wife in Vancouver. We were staying there for six, six months. And um, I was thinking, okay, which bike should I use to, to show my 77 Designs components? And I thought I have the budget. I can just buy any frame, basically, and just put my components on it and use it as a tester. And um, I was sitting down. I didn't find any frame that, like, checked all the boxes. It's, it's the same old story, basically, for everybody who's starting a project, I assume. But that was really the, the starting point. So I was like, there's nothing I want to buy. There's nothing in the market. If the budget doesn't play a role, nothing was satisfying me completely. So I was thinking I want to do it com- completely by myself. But I I was um, I didn't want it to ruin my business because starting such a huge project can easily eat all of your money and then you're bankrupt faster than you can see and you forgot about your, your bread and butter business. I don't know if, if that makes sense in English. Oh, completely, yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. Because, I mean, 77 Designs was paying the bills, was was funding the, the development. So easily with Carvance, we could have ruined everything that 77 Designs already accomplished because we were burning that money that 77 Designs was making with that project. So I, I didn't want it to fully commit, and I was saying, okay, this is just an R&D project, and I would want to sell it to another bike brand. We want to develop the best possible platform. And I'm just going to sell it because developing and building a prototype is one thing. You can do that maybe with a lot of free time, maybe one, 200 hours you put in. Then you put a 10 grand in and you have the first prototype and you can be happy and pat your shoulder and say, I achieved something. But bringing that thing to market is a whole different story that needs like much more commitment, much more investment. And in the end, much more time than, than developing the first prototype. 
So the, the biggest thing that, that I could never solve before was um, a high pivot with a lower anti-rise because all the high pivots have that problem on the rear brake, basically. And um, I, I never figured that out. But in, in that year, I was in, in Vancouver and I was uh, racing some of the BC Enduro Series stuff. And um, there was a situation. I was, I was just racing down uh, a really steep and loose section and there was a berm right after. So I had to brake really hard and I had a, a bike with a, actually with a lower anti-rise, uh, Alutec. And I hit the brake and it, it came out of its travel. So that was the moment that I really understood what anti-rise even means, what, what, what even happens and what I want to compensate. So I realized I don't want super low anti-rise because that, that's not the solution as well. I wanted it really like balanced, something in between. Like 50% anti-rise is, is way too low. It gives you tons of traction, but it doesn't compensate. So the, the rider position goes in front and the traction on the rear wheel doesn't have any benefit because you don't have any weight there anymore. And the other way around, too high anti-rise pushes your, your weight back, but you lose travel, so you lose traction because the suspension cannot work effectively anymore. So that was the, the clicking point. I thought, okay, that's it. And then I was playing in, in linkage for a long time triggering uh, the points, moving them around and figuring out when I move the, the instant center forward, then I can lower the anti-rise. It's, it's like complicated stuff, but if there would be a video, it would be, <laughs> it would be easier to show. But, uh, I, I hope it makes, uh, makes sense in the podcast as well. And um, yeah, I have some, some videos about it who can, can, can probably explain that better. Yeah, we'll we'll link to some video in on that in the uh, show notes that'll help out. But that, basically, that makes sense. So I guess in to sort of summarize a little bit, you have this set of trade offs where you have a bike with very low anti rise, and what happens is when anti rise is basically the extent to which the rear suspension counteracts uh, movements in in the suspension just due to the, your weight shifting as you hit the brakes, right? You have, you, you slow, you, you get on the brakes, you, your, your body naturally wants to pitch forward and it's sort of how much the bike counterbalances that, right? So you have very low anti-rise and what happens is that the rear suspension kind of extends and stands up as you shift forward. Very high anti-rise and the suspension settles down, which like you said, does a good job of, well, depending how much, it does counteract that forward weight shift, but also just means that you have less suspension travel available, the suspension firms up and doesn't work as well as suspension anymore. And with a high pivot bike, with a single pivot at least, you inherently have very high anti-rise, just due to the fact that the pivot is up high. And so if I'm getting this right, you're basically saying that you wanted to have a bike that had high pivot behavior in terms of axle path and rearward travel, exactly, but yeah. not the super high anti-rise that you get by doing a high single pivot. That was the trade-off we didn't want it to do. And uh, we, we were thinking about that basically for a long time, but I think in, in general for the industry, anti-rise is one of the, the things most of the industry didn't understand for a long time. So um, and or, or didn't take it serious enough. 
I'm sure there were guys understanding that way earlier than us, but didn't just take care of it in the way we think it would be appropriate. And about when were you kind of having this realization and really starting to move forward with what would become the final design? What time, what, like what year are we talking? That was uh, 2016. Okay. So high pivot Enduro bikes have really taken off in relatively recent years, but that was kind of ahead of that curve a bit. And so, especially because you hadn't yet seen a ton of high pivot Enduro bikes taking off at that point, why, what was your thinking behind going that route? And why did you sort of see the promise in that kind of layout? Um, essentially we saw like, because 26, um, bikes, there, there was some, two trends basically happening in that time that, that made the, that we observed the wheels were getting bigger, like 29 was becoming a mainstream thing. And, um, that leads to, to lower button brackets. So the rear axle pass started moving forward. So the problem became bigger from becoming the, the wheels were getting bigger. The problem was getting bigger. The 26-inch wheel has some kind of rearward axle pass, but the 29-inch traditionally made um, has mostly forward axle pass. You're kind of talking about bottom bracket height relative to the axles, right? Exa- bottom exactly. bracket drop rather yeah. than relative to the ground, because, yeah. Because when you make the, um, the anti-squats right, about maybe 120%, you've got to place the, the pivot somewhere around the chainring um, radius on top. If, if you make a single pivot, and um, that that always leads to to a forward curve, basically. Right, and so your thinking was just that you you wanted to have some rearward travel for bump absorption reasons and that kind of stuff, and this just seemed like a way to exactly. balance all those things. Yeah, exactly. And so, tell us a bit about where you went from there. I mean, you've got this idea of how you want to lay out the suspension with few few pretty specific concrete design goals in mind but what were the next steps from there you mentioned playing around in linkage and kind of figuring out what you thought was going to do the things that you wanted it to kinematically but there's a far cry from you know having the linkage file to (laughs) it actually being a real bike Um, i've joked about this before but i've got i don't know how many linkage files for various things that i've mocked up and thought about over the years but I haven't actually built any of them, right? And so I, I get so many people's emails with, with linkage files and saying, yeah, would that work? Yeah, that, that's cool. I want to build a bike around it. And of course, it's a completely different story. Yeah. But um, realizing the potential in linkage just, just by looking at the numbers, because essentially you're trying to design a feel. And it's, it's I think it's one of the most hard things, the hardest things in engineering to design a feeling. So you have a certain right feel in mind and you want to design that by numbers, right? But but I was pretty convinced that, that this kinematics would give us the exact feel that we were looking for. And uh, my partner back then, Stefan, he was always trying to push for a more unique layout because we were just waiting for the comments on, on Pink Pike or whatever, like this looks like a track, right? Because Because basically our layout looks so boring. It's just like a for the horse link uh, rear suspension but uh, the, the numbers are a completely different story and I was just like this just makes so much sense let's not care about the look let's just care about the performance and build a bike around it 
So from there, we took it to, to SolidWorks and normally you, you loop back to linkage, retweak it a little bit where you have a collision or something. Then you go further in SolidWorks. Then uh, we already had uh, suppliers from our earlier times, a uh, good frame builder in um, Germany. So we could uh, contact him again and warm up the relationships. And yeah, basically it, it happened relatively fast. We like convinced some friends. We said, this is going to be awesome. You want one of them too. So we built five in the first batch and like got some friends hooked up with that. And everybody was just so excited that just after like six months of writing the prototypes, it was clear that I don't want to sell that project to another company anymore. I was like, that's the best bike I've ever ridden. And everybody else was, was agreeing with that. So I was like, I can't just give that up. You know, I have to, I, I, I knew it's going to be the hardest, the hardest pass in my life. I just had a newborn baby and I was like, this is going to be mad, but I, I had to go through it. Yeah. And yeah, it, it seems to pay off. Yeah. It does seem like it's working out pretty well. Let's go a little more uh, in depth on some of the, the particulars of the bike design. So the first model was the VHP 16, like we mentioned it's um, and yeah, as you said, it's basically, it looks like a pretty normal horse link layout with a vertically oriented chalk, but just with the main pivot moved up a whole bunch and an idler pulley to compensate for all the chain growth that you get from mm -hmm. that. Yeah. And it's aluminum frame, like you said, made in Germany, all straight tubes and pretty simple lines. There's nothing too kind of crazy going on with it. But I guess tell us a little more about some of those decisions. Like you said, you kind of were just focused on building a bike that was sort of what you felt was the best engineered thing you could come up with and weren't as worried about aesthetics or kind of having it look different and have some crazy acronyms for your proprietary suspension design or whatever. But mm -hmm. yeah. How did you arrive at things like making it out of aluminum and so on? What was the thought process there? Uh, basically, because we know a whole lot of things about aluminum and we, we built bikes with aluminum. And um, yeah, when I was working as a precision mechanic, I was working all day long with aluminum. So it's just like the material we know best. And uh, of course, carbon fiber is very interesting, but it's also like, especially recent years, like the last two years, show very much that we did a good choice there because a lot of people are coming back from carbon bikes to aluminum bikes because it's just not that impact-resistant. Impact and you can have a little dent in an aluminum frame and still ride it for another five years. But with, with carbon, you need to either fix it or replace it. So, yeah, we, we just really wanted to make it simple, like, pH level certified and, um, and the end light at the same time. We didn't want it to have it like, I don't know, like Nikolai heavy, let's say 3.8 kilograms or something. We wanted to, to be able to compete actually with carbon frames. And then the best way is to have a, to connect two dots with a straight line, right? To, and, and with a round tube because a round tube is basically the, the ideal shape. What we, what we learned later is, of course, when we did some FEM, that uh, a round tube connecting to a round tube uh, leaves one, one point that has the, the maximum of stress. So first, um, 
first prototypes didn't have any gussets because we wanted to have it like super clean, but we realized the stressing points in, in that area where it needs gussets, it just has to be more like a flat transition that the, the, the force is distributed over a broader uh, junction point. And uh, so, so we had to add some some gussets, and but we could could keep them really minimalistic and light. So we just basically throw the like 25 gram of gussets into the frame and like fix the problems because we really just um, yeah remove the peak points, the, the main stress points. We created like little cracks on the test rigs of the EFB test lab where we were working with, and yeah, so that's basically. We, we now we know if we would go for a hydroform tube, we would still make it round, but we might make it a little bit flat in the in the end to compensate for those kind of things. So that would be maybe the, the next level stuff that comes in a few years. But for now, we are, we are pretty happy with the way it is. And I think another important thing to note is that you offer semi-custom geometry on the bikes in a way that I imagine wouldn't be possible if you were doing them in carbon with the mold investment and whatnot. So basically, if I have it right, it's not full custom anything goes, but you can basically pick your combination of seat tube length, reach, and head tube length to make some tweaks based on your personal preferences and fit and all the rest. And uh, that's a rather unique and kind of cool little sort of side note on the frame design and just a bit of extra customization that you get from, well, yeah, making them out of aluminum. And I'd imagine doing it locally in Germany helps there too. You don't have to be coordinating with a factory overseas to build things to order and get them shipped. And it simplifies some of those logistics too, I would imagine. Yeah, we have um, we produce in relatively small batches. We produce like 60 frames at a time. So we basically get new frames every 10 weeks about. So we can always like, if, if somebody needs a specific geometry, we can always put it into the batch. Otherwise we pre-produce some like more SML kind of standard geometries that we knew that they're selling, that they're fit for most of the people. But there are always like some people who have a shorter legs, but big torso that want a, a short C-tube and a long reach, for example, to compensate for this stuff. And, and we are happy to, to help them with, with those kind of stuff. And we, we do it at no extra charge. It's like the prices are, are all the same. So basically, it's, it's kind of like a, a mixed calculation. We, we could maybe produce the standard geometries a little bit cheaper and the other, but we just want to, that everybody fits the, finds the right fit. And we don't want to charge differently for it. We just want to like offer the perfect fit because we believe it's uh, really critical for the, for the perfect performance. Yeah, it's... It's nice to have the option and uh, take us through the geometry of the VHP 16 a little bit more in detail too. kind of we've talked about the suspension layout and some of the other design details. But yeah, what did you do in terms of geometry and how did you kind of settle on what you wanted to go with? Especially since you're talking about in the you know 2016 or thereabouts, that's a period where bike geometry was changing pretty rapidly in general, kind of what the norms were were uh going through a lot of evolution at that point and so yeah what was your process on that and where'd you end up okay yeah one thing that that was really uh, important for us is to have a relatively short uh chain state 
because we wanted the bike to to have this this balance. Uh, when, when I was in Nikolai with my internship, I, I built a bike with a 410 millimeter chainstay and a really long front center, and it was it was just feeling so cool because you could make like manuals with ease. You could just like put it around corners super easy. But when it was going straight, you had that flat out nothing can happen feeling because you had a long reach. And that was the moment I realized you, you don't need this growing chain stay along with, with the reach. Because if you would realistically compensate the, the rear center with the front center, nobody's basically doing it right. Because when you grow like 10 centimeters in the front, in order to compensate properly, you have to grow five centimeters in the rear because it's kind of like a one by two ratio. And nobody's doing that. Basically, it's, it's all just like, I don't know, micro compensation, but it's it's not the real deal. Nobody's doing the real compensation. So so basically for us it was really important to keep that bike nibble in the nimble in the rear, but like ready for everything in the front. It's kind of like how to say like party in the back, business in the front, right? So it, it it's a race bike in the front, but it's it's fun in the rear. So it's it it makes a real fun bike and I'm one meter ninety-three. Um, so sort of tall and everybody in my height range says you need a short uh, you need a long rear end so that, that you can have enough weight on the front wheel but that's not, not true for me and I have like a friend who's 2 meter 7 he's, he's riding that bike and he never complained about a short chainstay so, so that was really important for us and we are going to offer longer chainstay options in the future because people want it and we want to like, in the end, we are serving our customers, right? But from our philosophy, this is what we really believe in is, is right. And um, the other numbers were the 64 head angle, 77.5 seat angle. These were like the numbers we figured back then were perfectly. And it, it's really interesting to see like now, five years later, we didn't change any geometry number, nothing. And... Uh, this is industry standard right now, basically. Every good bike has that numbers, that exact numbers. And um, some are going a little bit further with the reach. And we just don't have that standard geometry. So nobody can really say, like, you guys are having a too long bike or something because you just compose it differently and you have a, a shorter reach, right? So we can really just tell the customer, okay, you need that. 420 C tube lengths to compensate for your legs. But um, if you want to have a more like a full gas feeling and not so agile, then just go for the longer reach and be happy, right? Yeah, flexibility is good, especially since you don't have to necessarily go to a longer C tube, longer stack height on the bike. That, to... doesn't, that doesn't grow together, yeah. Right. So, yeah, kind of pick your poison, as it were. And so it, uh, Started off as a full 29er, and now you've got some modular options for changing the frame up, including the new VHP 18. So tell us a little bit about kind of how that all came about and take us through the VHP 18 in some more detail while we're doing that. In fact, uh, I, I didn't develop the VHP 18. Our customers did. They just flipped the shock mount and put a longer shock in and said, hey, that works. So <laughs> we were just like, okay, if that works, that, uh, let, let's look at it in detail and just like 
bring it to market basically so that, that was the, the easiest development ever like i just designed a new shock mount i ordered a longer shock and we did some telemetry testing realized that it works great and uh, yeah basically that was the complete development story the rest was just just marketing it was like a two-day development thing and uh, it's just so cool that the platform is so versatile that it, it allows for that you basically have a super cool enduro and you put a double crown and another shock in and you have a i wouldn't say a world cup and a world cup dh bike but you have a dh bike for anything that is below world cup level and uh, the, the 180 in the rear is really working really great with a 200 millimeter fork in the front because of the rearward exit pass, it's just like it just feels right. We always uh, we always run the 160 bike um, with 180 forks, so it's it's sort of the, the the rear suspension works that good that the fork always should be like two centimeter plus. Yeah. So to kind of fill it out a little bit more, basically the VHP 16 is 160 millimeters travel. Then you have this bolt-on lower shock mount that with a different version of that you put in a longer eye-to-eye and stroke shock yeah bump it up to 180 millimeters a rear that version you run with a 27.5 rear wheel mm-hmm. and yeah. Yeah, we cannot accom- uh, we, right now because of the the, the added uh, travel we cannot accommodate the uh, 29er rear wheel yet we uh, that, that's why we also want to work on a longer rear end because then if we grow the chain stay in in this case it's necessary and uh, if we grow the chainsaw, then we can accommodate the, the bigger rear wheel. Right. So there, okay, you'll have a longer chainstay to clear big rear wheel in the longer travel configuration also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there's a third, is it a third lower shock mount to do a uh, mixed wheel size on the 16 with the shorter shock? Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So basically we just change the shock mount and it uh, pushes the, the rear end a little bit out of the travel. So you have the exact same geometry. The only thing that changes uh, slightly is the, the anti-squat goes up a little. So you have a little more anti-squat, but we have so little pedal kickback, so it's it's absolutely just like a benefit. There's no, no downtrade with that. And the rear end shortens a little bit more. So in, in sag position, you are at uh, 419. Uh, not, not in sag position, in extended position. You're at 419, and then you're at uh, 434 instead of 436 in the sag position. So it's a tiny bit shorter, but essentially no difference. Yeah. yeah, pretty moderate changes. I guess I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on mixed wheel setups in general. They're kind of a hot button thing right now, and we've had a few different bike companies kind of weighing in recently. Yeah, what are your thoughts on them, and what are you personally preferring to run mostly these days i like them better because <laughs> they're more fun it's it's just like i like to jump i like to throw my uh, my wheels around like and and ride a lot front heavy and let the rear and just go fly around and uh, that just works better the, the 29er wheels they're so stable and they don't give so much clearance if you want to jump and you just like push the bike up it just like really scrubs the balls and that's not not ideal for for my style of riding, but there are a lot of people who prefer the other version. So it's it's really personal preference. Yeah, I think that's about right. 
I happen to fall into the camp of not loving mixed wheels, but just, yeah, different riding styles, different preferences. And so, yeah, you've mentioned some options for a longer chainstay length coming in the pipeline. Anything else that you're kind of working on or thinking about or want to tease here? Um, yeah, we're kind of teasing already on social media a little. We uh, just built up um, a concept bike like for a downcountry uh, high pivot platform. But uh, of course, we, we opened a completely new platform, but we just took a took a Cavens VHP 16 and modified it that much that we could uh, reduce the travel to 12 centimeters rear travel and put in a 130 millimeter um, fork in the front. So it, it results in like a 65.5 head angle and a 120 um, suspension. So it's kind of like a real. It, it feels more like a trail bike. The, the 120 is just like the, the number the downcountry bikes have recently, but because of the, the performance of the rear, it feels like a trail bike. Um, and we're really like amazed by the performance because it, if you pedal it, it, it feels like a cross-country bike. It, it climbs amazing because you have so much traction. Because one of the, the um, benefits that nobody really talks about high pivot bikes is that they have so much traction. And, and this is because you have a lot of anti-squat, but you don't buy it with anti uh, with, with pedal kickback. This is like a geometric thing. And it has, we, we call it like a natural anti-squat because of the higher pivot. So you, the, the, the off trade is not so bad. Normally you have like, in the climbing gear, you have like 20 degree pedal kickback through the whole travel. And we have like, Five degree, so and, and this really offers tons of traction because you're not holding against it, and and if you have a little impact, it doesn't pull your pedal back and 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 stiffens up the rear end like this, so the, so the rear end still works active. So our our hope is that even in cross country, you can benefit from it because you can climb better, you can climb more efficient, even if you lose two watts on the on the idler wheel. You, you climb easier, so in, in overall, it, it might be even a better bike for cross country, but that's not where we are heading. We are heading for enduro guys who want to have fun on their home trails that they don't have so much elevation. You know? It is interesting because, like you said, we haven't seen too many really short travel high pivot bikes, at least thus far. And uh, yeah, what you're saying about climbing traction in particular does make sense. And um, It'll be interesting to see where you go with that and kind of what's coming down the pipe there and uh, and whether the high pivot sort of wave that we're seeing right now continues to creep downward in the travel segments because, you know, it was something that really first got its start in downhill bikes quite a while ago. The industry sort of went away from it for a bit and now it's coming right back and working its way downward in travel incrementally. And so... Uh, yeah, it'll be cool to see where that goes in the years to come here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that's been a really good rundown of cabins and your history and quite a cool backstory behind the company. So appreciate you giving us all that. Before we let you go, though, we do like to wrap by asking if our guests have a big idea to share. So do you have anything for us? One of the big ideas I just shared. This is true. That's already a project. That's not an idea anymore. 
that's uh, I mean we already have people working on it so um, what I really like to do in the future is like to to start um, start taking care of production myself like to 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 kind of automate the entire process to, to design an app where the people can put the, their proportions their, their height their arm span their writing stuff and then the app kind of walks them through what's the ideal geometry and from there they can place the order and then they can uh, we have an automatic uh, manufacturing line there's a lot of robots and this kind of stuff that kind of uh, the, the jig automatically sets to the right numbers and then there comes the robot and makes the spot welding and then basically that would be just a, a person because the, the welding the final welding is is not not good enough with the robots yet but 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 that's something because i come from manufacturing originally it's something i would be really keen on that that would be like the really big idea going on in my mind right now but that's probably a bit further down the road but we are trying that is certainly a big idea that's a new one so interested to see where that goes yeah, like like automated customization you know i, I think that's the yeah. future i think that's that's amazing yeah but um yeah way to go especially for a small business like us that doesn't have the, <laughs> the account stacked with the money yeah. right well this has been a really fun chat thanks again for taking the time and learned a lot about the company and what you guys are up to so i think it's been a lot of fun yeah Appreciate you coming as well. on. yeah i had a lot of fun too it was great Thanks for asking all the hard questions. Yeah. Thanks for coming on again. It's been awesome. Right. Yeah. Have a good one. Bye. All right. That's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And if you're enjoying these conversations, then we'd really appreciate you taking just a minute to leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. I also want to say thanks to Giacomo for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again real soon.